As the worship team makes their way down, I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. Where this will take us in the Gospel of Luke is at the moment of crucifixion. Jesus is already upon the cross. And there's an exchange that happens between the two thieves on the cross and Jesus. And the reason that we're there today is because Jesus talks about what is about to happen next. What's the next thing that happens after Jesus will die? And the reason that matters is because today we're at that point in the Apostles' Creed as we walk through it this fall, where we're, we're up to that part about Jesus is crucified, he's died and buried, and then we say he descended into hell. Now, Anyone familiar with the creed, the two questions that always come up are, what does it mean if we're at a Reformed church that we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church? Well, that's just because Catholic is an adjective, lowercase c in that case, not the, the church that is the Roman Catholic Church. But this other one about, well, wait, what is this about Jesus going to hell? What, is that, what does that mean? Especially with we keep in mind Luke 23, verses 39 through 43, that we'll read in just a moment. And so I invite you to just open your mind up a little bit and maybe brace yourself because this is the week where we talk about hell a little bit more. I don't know, I think some people plan their last camping trip and time to be gone really, really well, maybe to avoid this particular one, I'm not sure. And yet this is meaningful for us to pay attention to. I know some messages in church, we kind of expect to have kind of a how-to application for us at the end, like how to be a, a, a better friend, a better spouse, a better parent, a better boss, um, or what does it look like to share your faith or do this or do that. I don't think this week maybe has the same direct application in mind, but it's important for us to wade deeply into these theological waters, this deeper territory of our minds, engaging that there is something going on, something so much bigger than us and what we see and what we do through the week that we're, we talk a lot about how we live in the seen world, but what about all that is unseen? That it's no hardship for us to say that our God is so much bigger than us, but also the, 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 the world and what happens with life and death is so much bigger than just our lives. And so as we keep that in mind today, I invite you to just Open your mind and imagination a bit as we try to wrap our minds around that which is unseen, that which is maybe not all that we know perfectly with perfect detail, and yet important enough that Scripture makes note of it and that it matters to us how we understand, how we believe all of this takes place. So with that precursor, before we read Luke 23, 39 through 43, I invite you to pray with me. Jesus, you are our Savior and Lord, and we ask that you speak to us, not just as we read the words that you said to the thief on the cross, but as you speak to us today, as you open up our minds and perhaps the day-to-day -day worries that we have, as you give us this bigger picture and vision of life and death after life and heaven and hell and all of these unseen realities. Open our minds that we may be challenged to that which is greater than us, encouraged by the hope that you offer us even in such a time and place as this in the scriptures. And may we go 
not feeling frightened or small, but may we go with a deeper understanding of what you went through for us, that your death and burial and dissension may deepen our appreciation of your great love for us, and that that knowledge of your great love will further our love for you and neighbor. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Luke 23, verses 39 through 43. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in the creed, we say, he des- Jesus descended into hell. And then in Luke chapter 29, 23, verses 39, we hear Jesus saying to someone who is about to die, who is about to cross that threshold from life on this earth to afterlife, death after life. And Jesus says, today, not next weekend, today, you will be with me in paradise. We don't believe that Jesus committed the worst bait and switch possible in human history of saying, today you'll be with me in paradise. But then where does Jesus go that very day? Because he says, you will be with me. Jesus is saying to that thief on the cross, where I am going, you will be with me today. But then in the creed, we say Jesus descended into hell. Did that thief on the cross that was promised paradise have to go to hell? It is not the character of Jesus that we know to create a cosmic bait and switch, if you will. So what is happening? And there's an exhaustive amount of questions that we could ask about what what does happen in that moment where we cross over from life here into death? What's it like after that? What all is going on? Suffice it to say, it's complicated. And it's also simple in what we need to know. And there's always more nuance that we could add to it. But we do hopefully walk away today with a clear understanding of what the creed does mean to tell us and teach us and for us to hold to and what it doesn't mean. Though words get tricky sometimes and we might get caught up a little bit there. Hades is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Sheol. Now, most Bibles today don't use the word Sheol, which is a huge disappointment because older translations would use the word Sheol, which was this place of the dead. It wasn't necessarily hell the way we think of it, of like lake of fire and and the place where the souls of the damned would go. But Sheol was, well, it's something after life. It's somewhere that people are going after they have lived this life on this earth. So Hades is the word for Sheol in Hebrew. 
And in the Apostles' Creed, when we say in English, he descended into hell, the original writing of the Apostles' Creed said descended into Hades, into that Sheol, Hades, place where people go after they die, that something is happening after death. But we don't get necessarily always the same consistent, clear message on what's going on there. And there is a different word, so I know we're minding a lot of words right now, but we've got Hades, Sheol, place of the dead. We'll come back to that in a minute. And we also have Gehenna. Gehenna is a word that is like lake of fire, the naughty place, like the place you absolutely don't want to go. Where Sheol is maybe negative or neutral, Gehenna is the really bad spot. Gehenna actually comes from, well, the word comes from an actual place. Hell is that place of future punishment called Gehenna or Gehenna of fire. This was originally the valley of Hinnom, which is south of Jerusalem. And Hinnom, where the Greek, where we get the word Gehenna, is where the filth, all of the yuck and junk and garbage of the city, as well as dead animals that had to be burned, that all happened in Gehenna. Gehenna was both the Jerusalem sewer plant as well as the place where you burned all the dead animals after they were sick or dying. So, not a great place. Not somewhere that any of us would want to go. So Jesus uses that word Gehenna sometimes, and that's the scary one. That's the, there's fire and filth and burning. So what about all this talk of, well, how do we understand if it's not Gehenna when it's just Hades, when it's Sheol, what on earth or what not on earth is going on there? Sheol is mentioned a few times before we get to this point in the New Testament where Jesus is on the cross, before it's mentioned in the Apostles' Creed, which is a couple hundred years after the cross. Sheol is interesting. Psalm 139, verse 8 says, If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. This is where I get a little bit annoyed that modern translations try to smooth things out for us because they're trying to use words that we actually use. And it'd be helpful if we just use the word Sheol. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, you are there. Which means in Psalm 139, there is a claim that if I go up to the heavens, well, God is there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, in the depths, God, you are also there. Because the point of Psalm 139 is that you can't get away from God. You can't escape God. So we get this picture of Sheol. Not necessarily hell as we think of it, but somewhere that's a place of the dead. When Hannah is praying before the Lord, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, she mentions Sheol. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave, or he brings down to Sheol, the grave, the earth, the place where dead people go. He brings them down to Sheol and he raises them up. Hannah, long time before the birth of Christ, has some resurrection hope that God can take what is dead and bring it back up to life. She goes on to say, the Lord sends poverty and wealth and he humbles and he exalts. It's always a both and with God. God's sovereignty is a really, really big picture. So, the Jews maybe didn't have the same 
zeroed-in understanding of hell that we have developed over time, but they do have an idea of Sheol, Hades, somewhere where dead people go. But I think the story that, that I know it's one more story to add, but I think the one that always stuck with me as a kid of understanding, well, what happens after we die, especially before Jesus, so when we look at the Old Testament, when we look into the Old Testament, we get the story of King Saul, who's really stressed out, and he just wishes that he could talk to the prophet Samuel. There's only one, pro- there's only one problem with Saul's plan. Samuel, the prophet, is already dead. But Saul really, really, really wants to talk to Samuel. So he goes to the witch at Endor, a medium who can talk to spirits who are beyond. And this is the type of stuff that we're like, this is in the Bible? Well, Saul goes to the witch, the medium, and says, hey, I need you to call somebody up for me. And she's like, uh-uh, King Saul said that, that he'll kill whoever does this kind of work because it's bad. Saul was right about that. But Saul has disguised himself. And he's like, don't worry, you won't be harmed. I need you to call up Samuel. And in 1 Samuel 28, starting at verse 13, the king, disguised, Saul said to her, don't be afraid, tell me, what do you see? And the woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. Okay, I know we're almost up to Halloween. This is creepy stuff. I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like? King Saul asked. He is an old man wearing a robe, and he is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And Samuel said to Saul, Samuel, the dead guy, in 1 Samuel 28, Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Why have you essentially woken me up? Samuel was in Sheol. And he seems annoyed that he has been disturbed from some sort of rest. But the language might confuse us because we're like, Samuel was a good guy. He was a righteous prophet of God who led the people of Israel. Why is he coming up? Shouldn't he actually be coming down out of heaven? This should be a little bit confusing to us. There's something about Sheol that just doesn't quite fit our worldview. That Samuel would be coming up essentially out of Sheol and he's bothered by this disruption of his slumber or rest. At best, in this case, Sheol sounds neutral. At best. So, when we say that Jesus descended to hell, what was he doing there? Did he go down to Sheol? Did he go talk to people like Samuel who were down there? Even though it's confusing, on the Mount of Transfiguration, it seems like Jesus is being visited by those who were visiting from heaven above. My caution in this, friends, is to not think that we can intellectually master away any of this in any way that gives us power over heaven and hell, but to be reminded that there is a dominion of God that goes beyond our seen understanding, beyond our logic, or beyond our categories that we cling to. Jesus descended to the dead, to Sheol. What do we mean by that? And what in the world or not in the world is going on in this moment? Now, those are all Old Testament examples. They're before Jesus. How do we understand now, after Christ's death and resurrection, 
what's happening. And next week, Ben DeBoer gets to preach on the resurrection and ascension, which I think will be a lot more fun and cheery than this week that we spend on hell. But it's important for us to wrestle with this stuff of after death. Lest we be lulled into a snooziness about thinking that Sheol is really neutral, Jesus, earlier in the Gospel of Luke, tells one other story where he references Hades, Sheol, that neutral or in-between space. And here's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16. This is the story that he tells of a rich man who was dressed in fine linen, and he had every luxury of every day, and at his gate was a beggar named Lazarus. And finally, one day, the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. So he died, his body's in Sheol, but he's also being brought to Abraham. He's in good company. The rich man died and was also buried. And then Jesus says, in Hades, in Sheol, where he was in torment, this rich man, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony in Sheol. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over there to us. There's a chasm between Sheol, this spot where the dead people are, and where Abraham is, where Jesus speaks of comfort for the beggar named Lazarus. So the man presses further. Well, then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. All of a sudden, Sheol is not sounding so neutral. It's sounding a little more like what we think of hell to be. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, no, Father Abraham, he said, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And the last line that Jesus uses in this parable is that Abraham says to the man, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, then they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. From Sheol. We can't intellectually master all of the understanding and how maybe words change over time. And I don't think we can exhaustively know every single thing that happens and doesn't happen after life ends. I also realize that talking about it can maybe stir up a little bit of anxiety and anxiousness within us that it might freak us out just a little bit. What did Jesus mean about all of this? And what do we mean when we said he descended to hell. Did he just go to the neutral place? Did he stop there on his way up? There is older church teaching before the Reformation, before Catholics and Protestants split up and Protestants split up some more, that Jesus, upon his death, went to Sheol, not hell as we think of it, not the place of the damned, but kind of this neutral, unpleasant in-between space and took the righteous with him to heaven after that. And there's some beautiful ancient church artwork of this, of Jesus approaching and taking those with him. 
Now, that artwork can be appreciated and it might tell us something about what we're trying to understand. That, that Jesus' invitation exceeds all time for those who are with him to be gathered up into heaven. I would appreciate that artwork. I would be very cautious of the artwork of like super muscular, weightlifting, bodybuilding Jesus storming the gates of hell. If Jesus looks more like a Southern California bodybuilder than a carpenter's son from Nazareth, I'd be really cautious of that artwork because I don't think it's full of good theology. I would invite us to think about that Jesus is ascending to heaven, that he is telling the truth to that thief on the cross. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And who gets to go with Jesus into that paradise? Prophets like Samuel, who lived long before the days of Jesus, who are now ushered in? I would say this is a maybe. And also, it's one of those places that we need to be careful that we don't define what Scripture doesn't define for us. That our theology doesn't get ahead of what we can know and understand as we read scripture carefully, as we mind the words of it. It does give us the caution that we shouldn't think of hell as a neutral place, as an in-between. And we also should have some assurance that Christ's grace and his invitation towards paradise is wide and broad. And that there is comfort taken in that. When people would have questions, what about the people who died before Jesus? Were they waiting in Sheol until Christ's resurrection, that Christ's resurrection would become their own, that they too would go into paradise? This is one teaching of the church, an ancient teaching of the church that gets revisited with some, well, the most honest theologians who say, we're not sure. But what we take a lot of comfort in is the scope of God's grace. What ultimately is the creed after in all of this? What, what should we be thinking when we say he descended into hell, when we say that in the Apostles' Creed? Please, my friends, do not have bodybuilder Southern California Jesus storming the gates of hell. Not quite there. But it does mean that Jesus actually died. The point of the creed, the thing that when, when we couldn't read, when we didn't have the Bible collected, the emphasis that people were putting for all Christians to know was that Jesus actually died. He didn't pretend to die. He didn't fake his death. And although conspiracy theories are popular today and they were popular then, he didn't somehow orchestrate this great conspiracy to cover up a fake death. The point of the creed, when we say he descended to hell, to Hades, to Sheol, is that Jesus actually died. He died the way we die, so that he could live that we might also live as he lives. This was not a fake. This was not a bait and switch. Jesus actually died. He experienced the death that we die so that we don't have to. The Apostles' Creed is one of our statements of faith that we hold on to the understanding of what actually happened to Jesus. And the truth of the matter is that he died, but the hope of the matter is that he rose again, that we also might rise again after death. And I know that perhaps the Heidelberg Catechism 
Some of you maybe struggled through that in your youth. Maybe it wasn't your favorite thing in the world. The catechism doesn't always get the credit it needs for being actually a very comforting document. Some of our more staunch CRC upbringing folks are like, I memorized most of that thing. But I want to draw our attention to Heidelberg Catechism question and answer number 44. And I won't have you recite it with me, but I would like to pay attention to what it says. So we pull up number 44. Find it in my own notes too. I love our big pulpit, but this is really nice, but I do lose more papers in here. They get overlapped. I'll just, I'll just read this part of the catechism and maybe it'll catch up. Oh, there we go. The Catechism Q&A 44, why does the creed add, he descended to hell? And it's this, to assure me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation. Hold there for a minute. To assure me during deepest dread and temptation that when we experience maybe what sometimes people describe, and maybe this is an exaggeration and hyperbole we shouldn't be comfortable with. People say they're experiencing hell on earth. When people talk about chronic pain that there is no escape from, and they make references to hell, maybe that's a little bit too much. Maybe that's a little bit too far. But I think that's the reality that the catechism picks up on in saying that when we say Jesus descended to hell, that we mean, for one, that he actually died. That's earlier question and answers. But then to assure me, during attacks of deepest dread and temptation, during our worst days, during our worst moments, during our worst seasons of life, of chronic pain and misery and angst and anxiety. Next slide. To assure me in those times that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish and pain and terror of soul, next slide, on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. That hell, the, the lake of fire, the really bad place, that we are delivered through salvation in Christ from that. And that even that neutral or somewhat negative Sheol, the place where Samuel seems to have been hanging out after his death, that Christ's deliverance is from hell, is from Sheol, is from mortal death and into life and paradise, that Christ experienced that for us so that we do not ever have to experience hell the same way that Jesus did. And that the catechism, being a reformed document, has this understanding that Jesus experienced hell as we think of it on the cross and also earlier. And the scripture reference to that is to Gethsemane, that hell is a separation from God. Hell is being conscious and alive and aware, well, dead, but aware of a separation from God. And that Jesus, that great chasm between the poor beggar Lazarus and the rich man, that Jesus has bridged that chasm on the cross and also earlier that we are delivered from that hellish anguish and torment, saved from Gehenna, the lake of fire, the burning garbage and the dead animals, but also delivered and rescued from Sheol, from where we would otherwise just go when we die. This is Christ's deliverance made plain to us. This is good news for us. This is rescue. This is celebration of salvation. And so it makes enough sense for us 
to say in the creed that Jesus died, actually died, so that we, when we die, can follow him into life. And it also makes sense to think of Jesus' anguish and separation being cut off from God in that moment so that we might never have to live with that separation between us and God, that the chasm instead could be filled. If we go back to the beginning, with those words in mind, let's say them together. This, this is more computer issue than anything else. So my friends, get ready to read the bold with me, but I want to ask the question, why does the creed add he descended to hell? To assure me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul, on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. This matters to us. This is a reminder of how much bigger the world is than our lived experience. And if I could give one parting reminder or encouragement on this, it's this. I think for a good season in the church's history, turn or burn was the primary way of sharing the gospel. Come to Jesus, and when we do that, we turn Jesus into fire insurance. You don't want to go to hell, for sure. Nobody would want to go to hell. But if we limit the scope of God's grace to only, well, it's your get out of hell free card, we cheapen the grace of God. And we also, we miss a huge portion of what the gospel's intent is for us. Fear of hell will only bring us so far in sharing the love of Christ. Rather, our invitation as Christians, as people of the resurrection of Christ, not just his death, our place as people of the resurrected Christ is to invite people to know the living Jesus in all of his fullness and glory and deliverance to us. It's more than fire insurance, but rather we live and worship God because he lives. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have experienced the agony for us, that you might spare us from it. That you also, you don't invite us to live our lives in guilt that you took our place, but in gratitude for the grace that you have offered us. That we celebrate your goodness and your love. And that you have delivered us from hell. You've also delivered us simply from death. Because you are a God who deliver us, delivers us from death into life. As we walk away from this place into our daily work, into our weeks, as we see what we see, as we go familiar places, may we not take for granted just how much of eternity and heaven and hell and all of the unseen beyond us is also in existence, just as much as the cars that we drive and the pews that we sit in. Thank you, Lord, that you have taken our place and that you have delivered us, not just from death, but into life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.